Welcome to the Harbor Church Podcast. Harbor is here to connect people with Jesus and with each other. If you're looking to get connected, you can find more info at harborchurch.com. Now here's this week's message from Pastor Josh. Welcome. I'm so glad you guys are here. Welcome everybody who's tuning in right now online. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook or listening to this on the podcast, my name's Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Harbor Church. I'm thrilled that I'm thrilled that you're with us, especially this weekend as we celebrate Palm Sunday. And uh, I'm not going to talk too much about uh, the, the entry of Jesus into, into Jerusalem, but I do think it's worth remembering, especially as we, we say, hey, what is Palm Sunday about? Maybe you've never been to any church ever. Maybe this is your very first time. I'm so excited that you're with us. Or maybe you've gone to church, but nobody ever really explained some of the things that happened. And I'm not really big into traditions. Into I'm, I'm not a fan of religion. I think real Christianity is God reaching down. I think man reaching up to God is a lot of the stuff we create that isn't, doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. But I do think it's important to remember some key events, like next weekend's Easter, Yes, there you go. Okay, yeah, like, yeah, that's a good one to remember. You're like, can we, should we, is that a tradition we can have? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and this week being, you know, a, a week out is, is the Palm Sunday. Let me remind you of why we call it Palm Sunday. This story takes place in all four Gospels, but I'm going to read to you from Matthew. In Matthew chapter 21, verse number seven, it says, they brought the donkey. This is Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, hey, I'm going to enter into Jerusalem. I want you to go get a donkey, this colt that's never been ridden before. You'll find it. He told them exactly where they would find it. They found this donkey. They bring it to Jesus. They said they bring the donkey and the, uh, and the colt to him, and uh, they threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. That's talking about Jesus. Now, most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of them, and the people who didn't have a jacket to take off or had already taken off their jacket and thrown it on the ground, they, they went over and they cut branches from the palm trees. And that's why we call it Palm Sunday. And so they cut the branches down and they spread those on the road. And as Jesus was in the center of this procession, this entry into Jerusalem, it says, all the people around him were shouting, praise God for the son of David. Praise God. They're saying, Hosanna. They're, they're shouting this out. They're saying, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. So they're they're pumped. They've heard about this Jesus. Some of them had seen him do miracles. They know he brought Lazarus back from the dead. He's healing blind people and crippled people and lepers. And he's doing all these, this miraculous, these miraculous things. And they're like, yeah, we know the prophecy that said the Messiah would come riding in to Jerusalem. Now, a king who was going to war would, would, would traditionally ride in on a horse. But a king who was during, coming in during a, a time of peace would come in on a donkey or a colt like this. So Jesus coming in is, is signifying the prophecy that they had read about that the, that the Messiah would show up. So they're like, yes, he's coming. He's coming to, to set us free. And they're thinking in their minds, he's going to beat our Roman oppressors. The Roman Empire who has conquered us, this Jesus guy is going to put them in their place. And they're all excited. We're so excited. Hosanna. They're shouting it out. It says the entire city of Jerusalem, verse 10, was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, in Galilee. And uh, I want to stop because I, I, I know that when we talk about the week leading up to Resurrection Sunday, it's kind of heavy because it's a, whew, I mean, it's the crucifixion of Jesus. It's an innocent man ha- being 
taken captive, being betrayed by one of his closest followers, Judas, one of the disciples, and then be given a mock trial where false witnesses testify against him so that he would be convicted, accused guilty, although he's never done anything wrong, and then beaten mercilessly by the Romans in an effort to save his life. So they said, let's just beat him within an inch of his life and that'll pacify the mob. But after they beat Jesus so badly, the mob doesn't relinquish. And instead they say, okay, let's go ahead and just kill him. And he ends up being crucified on a cross. It's a heavy, heavy week. And I know there's a lot for us to think about. And I, I kind of want to leave that hanging there so that you do think about it this week. But I want to I go back, because as the intro video talked about, Jesus knew that was coming. Jesus wasn't caught by surprise that he was going to be crucified. Jesus knew his three-year term of, of ministry, his time of leading his disciples, he knew all of it was coming to an end. He knew as he entered into that beautiful walled city of Jerusalem and fulfilled the prophecy that Daniel had, had forecasted, that, that had prophesied that, that there would be a Messiah coming. He knew it was him. He knew it was his time. He knew that, that, that the crucifixion was coming. And so I kind of asked the question, what would you do if you knew it was your last few days on earth? Like if you knew that your time was coming to an end, how would you act? And I thought about this a lot. And I was like, if I was Jesus, man, I don't know. I would, <laughs> I'd at least gotten in a shot or two on Judas, right? Like, like, anybody else feel that way? Like, hey, you know, doing all the miracles, I'd just conveniently skip him. I'd be like, I know what you're going to do, bro. You ain't got no fish. No fish for you. Like, I, Jesus, Jesus washes Judas's feet at the Last Supper. I mean, it blows my mind how, how much of a servant Jesus was. He's an amazing rabbi, master teacher, and yet in his last few days, he does so many really cool things. Even on this, we get an insight into what's coming even on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So I read to you his, his entry into Jerusalem. Uh, I read it to you from Matthew. Let me read it to you from Luke, because not everybody, not everybody is excited for Jesus to show up at, and, and enter into Jerusalem. Not everybody is happy on this day. And maybe you can take a guess who isn't happy. In Luke chapter 19, verse 36, it says, As he rode along, talking about that story where Jesus is on the colt going in, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, now Jesus is staying outside of Jerusalem. He's been staying in Bethany. And Bethany is a town two miles outside of Jerusalem where his friend Lazarus and, and Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. And so Jesus would stay in Bethany this week. And he would, go home, he would go home, he would go to Bethany, he would be there at night, and then every morning he would wake up and go back into Jerusalem on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday into Wednesday when he's betrayed. And it says he's, he's riding down the Mount of Olives, and all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked alongside, praising God for all the wonderful miracles that they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. So we've read that, but if you continue on, Luke shows us that not everybody's happy like that. It says, some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rabbi, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Chew these guys out. Jesus, don't let them praise you as the Messiah. Don't let them praise you 
as the, the prophesied answer. Don't let them give you that kind of accolades, they tell Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, and I love this. Jesus' answer, he replies, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. He's like, listen, the Bible says that nature declares the marvelous handiwork of God, that, that nature knows how awesome God is. And Jesus is saying, if my people don't learn to sing my praises, oh, I'm talking to you, Harbor Church. <laughs> now, listen, I, I'm going I'm to give you a pass because for the first 30 years of my life, this is how I did worship at church. Can we sit down yet? <laughs> Thank you. And part of that is because I have a horrible singing voice. A horrible singing voice. I know that nobody in the church wants to hear me lift my praises. Because <laughs> it hurts things. I'm not lying. I think I told this story a long time ago. In my junior high, everybody had to be in choir. Everybody had to be in either choir or band. And since I have this much musical ability, for the giant... <laughs> For the giant program that our school would do, everybody either sang or played an instrument, and it was so bad that in the history of my school, they said, Josh, you, you open and close the curtain. <laughs> I'm not lying. I'm not lying. So for my seventh grade year, all I did was <laughs> and walked back, and I was like, I got a grade for that, because they're like, if you sing, it will throw everybody else off. Now, because of me, I like to call it the Josh Adams rule. From then on, they, they did a, like a musical play where kids could act and the other kids could sing. So those that can't sing could just act. And I, I, I like to call that the Josh Adams clause, the Josh Adams rule, because they needed something for people who are horrible at singing. Now, I say all that to say, I get it if you're like, I don't know if I want to sing along with the band and this worship and praise. But I think you got to get to the part where you, you understand it's not about everybody else in the room. It's about saying, God, you've given me a chance here on this side of eternity to get in practice of praising you because when I get on that side of eternity, that's all I'm going to do in heaven. And I, I, just, I just get to a place where, man, I don't really care what you think about my voice. I just get there and I'm like, man, I just, it, while we're singing, if you, didn't, if you didn't feel that a few minutes ago where you're just standing there going, I, I just envision someday I'll stand in heaven before the King of Kings and I'll get to praise him, and I won't give any kind of care about what any of you think. All I'll do is be like, God, thank you so much for everything that you are. I just want to give you everything I've got. So if I can get there and that day, I want to get practice right now. So I love Jesus' response. We're like, now I'm going to tell him to be quiet. I want him to make some noise. Now, if you're in here and you're like me and you don't worship, I hope you squirm a little bit right now and you get convicted and you move on from it. But here's the thing. The Pharisees aren't the only ones. In, that, that aren't enjoying this moment. Do you know that? There's somebody else that's not having a good time. And you would think it would be Judas, right? No, I think Judas, Judas is with all their other disciples. Like, this ain't bad. Like, man, we're kind of popular. All right. The Pharisees were unhappy at this moment, but it also says in the next verse, but as he came closer, talking about Jesus, as he came closer to Jerusalem, and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. This is Jesus crying. How I wish today that you of all people, Jerusalem, the same people ripping palm branches down saying, we love you, we love you. 
that I wish today, of all people, you would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. And then he knows, he's prophesying what's going to happen to Jerusalem in the years to come. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls. These are the beautiful walls that Nehemiah had built almost 500 years earlier. And we just finished a series on that. And he's saying, look at these walls and look at how much God's blessed you and protected you. But you don't get it. And pretty soon, all these things that you've taken all your pride in, there's going to be enemies piling up ramparts, coming up against your walls, encircling you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you to the ground and your children with you. Your enemies won't leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it. Now check this out. You did not recognize it when God visited you. What a powerful thing. What a Man, what a heavy thing to hear if you're in the middle. Now hear me out. If you're in the middle of praising to be told you don't even recognize it when God visits you. And that gives us an insight. That moment of Jesus crying gives us an insight into his last couple days, why he does what he does. Because once again, like I said, if I knew I only had a couple days left to live, man, I would... I'd start, I'd start trying to make up some, some big tasks and, and accomplish some big things or, or go have a little bit of fun, right? I mean, Jesus has been working hard for three years. He didn't get to kick his feet up. He didn't get to enjoy it very much. It was just hard work, nonstop being pressed by people all the time. Most of his life was spent in a crowd with people pulling on him. He's only got three days left to live. Man, he might as well get some peace and quiet with just his friends, right? Here's what Jesus does with his last few days. It says this in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus entered. Now this is right after. This is the very, he's come down. He's come through the parade. They've broken down the palm branches and he rides all the way in. He gets off and he walks into the temple. It says he went into the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over tables, the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And then he yelled. Jesus got loud. It's called Palm Sunday because they're about to catch some hands. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) It's not. That's not true. I just made that up. He said to them, somebody's going to take that out of context. I know it. (laughs) He said to them, the scriptures declare. Now he's quoting Old Testament prophets. He says, this is Jesus. The scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So we see Jesus on his last days. We see him clean house. He shows up. That doesn't sound like Jesus, right? I mean, the the things that Jesus does in his last couple days don't feel like very Jesus-like. I mean, Jesus walking in, they're like, parade for Jesus. Hosanna, we love you, Jesus, son of David. He's like, thank you. Let's go. Starts kicking over tables. You heard the whole temple be like, what? He's mad. I don't want to hang out with that Jesus guy no more. <laughs> but you got to understand, it's Passover week. And Passover week means a lot of people are traveling into Jerusalem, and it's required that they make sacrifices. And your sacrifices had to be perfect without blemish. And it's hard to travel a long distance in those days with a, with a goat or a sheep or a cow, or if you couldn't afford them, maybe even small birds. You had to keep that animal alive. So it cost you money to feed it. But there's a chance of it getting injured on the trip and a lot more responsibility. 
Have you ever traveled with a dog? Anybody? Put that in your station wagon, try to take a road trip. It's just a, it's just a, it's a problem. And that's modern day, you know? Back then, they're like, we're not going to travel with our, sacrifice, our sacrificial animals. We'll just wait till we get there and buy them. And the guys in the temple knew that. So they were jacking the prices way up. They were taking an opportunity for people to make a sacrifice to God. And they were looking at us as a chance for them to put some coins in their pockets. And this upsets Jesus. He's like, he looked at, and get this, he looked at the religious people and he said, you're taking advantage of those who really need this. And he looked at the church people, if you will. And he says, your hearts aren't into helping them. Your hearts are in it because you want something for yourself. And if you don't think that'll preach today, man, Jesus cleans house. And then right after it says, in the next verse, it says, the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So I see him clean house and then I see him turn around and go right back to helping the helpless. In his last few days, he doesn't say, guys, I'm tired. I've been doing this for three years. Leave me alone already. Now he says, come on, bring him. Who can I help? Who in the last, last years of my life, the last days of my life, if it's Jesus and I'm asking the question broader, if I, I don't know how much time I've got left, but how about if in the time that I've got left, I clean house and get my priorities right. And then I, I look for ways to help those that are helpless. I look for ways to bless others instead of bless myself. What if that was our mission? What if that was your goal? If you said, I, I don't know if I, I've, I've got a lot of time left from God, but I'm going to make sure my priorities are right, and I'm going to make sure that my life is used to help others, not to make myself more comfortable. It then says in the next verse, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw all these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. And it did not make them happy. It says they became indignant. The other rabbis, the scribes, the scholars, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite hear Jesus receiving these accolades and it makes them mad. Almost like sometimes we can be real religious and still only be concerned with how we look and what we get out of it. Nobody? Okay. So they go to Jesus and they ask Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? I like Jesus. He's just like, yep, I do. Well, haven't you ever read the scriptures, Jesus asks? you got to understand how awesome of a dig that is. Jesus, do you hear these kids? Yep. Haven't you ever read the Bible? He says that to a group of men who have to memorize the Bible. I don't mean like they know a verse or two. I mean, these guys memorized entire books of the Bible. And Jesus looks at them and is like, have you ever read the Bible? <laughs> I mean, it's such a great slap to the face. He's like, haven't you ever read? Do you, do you even know the Bible? Bro, do you even lift? He says, haven't you ever read the scriptures? They say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. See, now he's quoting again. He's quoting scriptures to them that the kids are going to know the right place to put their praise. And it says, then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. So I see him clean house. I see him care about people who couldn't help themselves. And then I see he makes sure that the praise goes where the praise needs to go. And that's on the son of God. And I think a lot of times 
when we look at the end of our, our life, when we think about the end of our days, we want to make sure that our legacy is protected. What if we were more concerned about the praise at the end of our life going to the Son of God? What if we were more concerned that our legacy pointed people to an eternal salvation instead of a statue of how great we are? Now, do we, I hope all of us are loved by our family and kids and grandkids or co-workers or whoever it is that, that's left after you leave the planet, but that shouldn't be your goal. That's a, that's a byproduct of saying, God, use me to be the best person I can be. Let me be the best mom or dad or brother or sister or boss or friend or whatever. And hopefully that impact will make people fondly remember you when you're gone. But that shouldn't be your life goal. Like, hey, with my last few years, let me make sure that I'm remembered. No, it should be, I want to make sure that the praise goes where, where, to the thing that is most praiseworthy. Now, those are three things that, that popped out real quick. The fourth thing is where I really want to just hit and, and end on this last thing that he does. He also teaches another lesson. I'm not going to say it's his last lesson because you could argue his last supper with his disciples. He's teaching them stuff there too. But he gives them one more like, like tangible lesson Jesus does. So I, verse 17 says, you know, he, he goes back. He goes back to Bethany. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes back to Bethany. He's back hanging out with Lazarus. And then it says the next morning, this is Matthew 21, verse 18. In the morning, <clears throat> Jesus was returning to Jerusalem and he was hungry. And so he noticed a fig tree beside the road, and he went over to see if there were any figs, because he's hungry. But there were only leaves. And then he said to the fig tree, may you never bear fruit again. Jesus walked over to a fig tree. He looked, he couldn't find no figs, and then he cursed it to wither and die. And immediately the fig tree withered up, and the disciples were amazed when they saw this and they asked, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? Dude stopped a storm in the middle of like a tsunami. And they're like, man, how'd he do that? You're like, if you haven't learned after three years, bro, seriously, thick, come on. Like these guys, whatever. Here's what I, here's what I get out of this. I'm reading this. And I'm like, what does Jesus do with his last days? And here is the Jesus that sits down with little kids and welcomes them. He goes to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, and he invites them to be part of his entourage. He, he willingly goes and touches lepers when nobody else in society would go near them. This loving and kind Jesus, in his last days, walks up to a tree and curses it to die? Am I the only one that feels like that's out of Jesus's character? There's actually a, a, a guy who was arguing against Jesus being the son of God. And he used this passage to show, see, Jesus wasn't really loving. Look at what he does here. It seems so out of character, doesn't it? For a guy who was so inviting of everybody. He uses it as a teaching lesson. He says in the next verse, Jesus told them, I tell you the truth, disciples, followers, if you have faith and you don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can say to that mountain, may the mountain be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and it'll actually happen. You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you'll receive it. So he uses this as a lesson to teach his disciples about having some faith. I mean, his words of your curse, no more. 
You're not going to do anything anymore. It had power because he had faith. And he's saying, you guys can do the same thing. And he's preparing them because shortly thereafter, they ain't going to have Jesus no more. And they're going to have to go out. And they needed to have the confidence that when they prayed for something, for God to do something, Peter, the guy who makes this comment, shortly thereafter, walks up to a guy and says, hey, I want, to, I want you to be healed. And he, in the words of Peter, heal that man, not because Peter is powerful, but because Peter had faith in God and had the courage to step out and proclaim a healing. I don't know if he gets it if, if he doesn't learn this lesson right here. Like, hey, there's power when you, when you attach your words to a faith in a God who's bigger than you. And that'll preach it. I didn't see anybody write that down. But I want to, I want to talk about something really, really cool here with what little time we have left. I want to talk about why this fig tree gets cursed. Because Jesus could have just said, he could have done anything miraculous. He could have been like, man, I want, you know, I want a buffet to pop up out of the ground. Pow, pow, you know, and that happened. If he was hungry, right? And he could have taught him, man, just have faith and you can proclaim and you can do miracles. He could have said it anyways. But he, he uses a fig tree that wasn't producing fruit to make his point. Because he's teaching a couple of lessons here. He isn't just teaching about the power of prayer and faith, although that's incredibly valuable. What you got to understand is the fig tree throughout all of the Bible is this beautiful picture of how God wants to bless and use his people. I don't have time to give them all to you, but the fig tree is a metaphor time and time again for the, chil- the children of Israel, for God's hand being on them, for their, for their productivity, for their protection. When God proclaims the promised land, he proclaims it as a land flowing with milk and honey, but he also says with wheat and barley, with grapes and figs. He, he only promised them a few, few plentiful resources, and figs are constantly used as, a, as an expression or as an illustration that, that they, were, they, had a, they were in a time of peace and prosperity. And they, they, were, they were constantly referred to or often referred to as a fig tree. It's, 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 the only, it's the only tree that we really know of that was in the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves. I mean, figs are, are throughout the whole Bible. They're used in the book of Revelation to describe the second coming of Jesus. They're used at the very beginning. Figs are incredibly spread out throughout the whole Bible. I don't have time. I, we could do an entire study on just figs. I know, I, I nerded out on it. I don't expect you to. It's fine. <laughs> Let me do give you a couple of references. Hosea 9.10. The Lord says, O Israel, when I first found you, it was like finding fresh grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, you remember Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, those kind of guys. He says, it was like seeing the first ripe figs of the season. But when they deserted me for Baal, Peor, that's, that's when the people towards the end of the book of Kings and Chronicles, right before the Babylonians come in and, and capture them. He says, they, they, those people, they started worshiping themselves, giving themselves to that shameful idol. Soon they became vile, as vile as the God that they worshiped. The entire chapter of, of uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah uh, chapter 24, the whole thing is about figs. And I'll just read you the first couple verses. After King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon exiled Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, to Babylon, along with the officials of Judah. That's the whole Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den. That's that whole stuff going on right there. It's just 500 years uh, you know, uh, before the time of Jesus, or 600 years almost before the time of Jesus. It says, when he did all of that, Jeremiah says, the Lord gave me a vision, and I saw two baskets of figs placed in front of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. One basket was filled with ripe, fresh, ripe figs, 
while the other was filled with bad figs that were too rotten to eat. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, some very good and some very bad, too rotten to eat. And the, 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 the vision goes on to explain that the good figs were the people who were going to return back from exile, and the bad figs were the people who were going to continue to worship their false gods and be spread out, and they were no longer good to eat. And so God is using this metaphor, this picture of the fig tree and the figs to represent what it is he wants from his people. He wants that sweet aroma. He wants that beautiful fruit. He wants that thing that represents peace and prosperity. That's what he's looking for. Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verse 21. Don't be afraid, O land. I know things are tough right now, but be glad now and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, you animals of the field, for the wilderness pastures will soon be green. God will bring back his blessing, and we'll know he brings back his blessings because the trees again will be filled with fruit, and fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. Once there it is, the picture of prosperity. I told you it's also a picture of like things to come. It's a prophetic view. Matthew chapter 24 earlier, Jesus has this where he says, and he will send his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world. Jesus talking about the rapture from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. This is Jesus talking here. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very nigh. Right at the door, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. I don't have any more time for, for the sake of I want to I keep it as short as possible. The fig tree, the disciples would have known this what I'm describing to you, and then some. They have grown up, the people of Israel have grown up being compared to figs and fig trees and using the symbolism of, that, of a fig as God's prosperity and what God wants for them. And so in, in his last days, Jesus walks over to a fig tree looking for fruit, and he finds none. And he curses it. He says, no more. If you read Mark's account, it says that it wasn't the time. Most, most fig trees weren't in bloom. But see, if you look at it, look at the wording exactly. If you'll go back, please, in verse number 18 and 19, it says he, he's hungry. Verse 19, he notices a fig tree beside the road. This is Matthew 21, 19. He notices a fig tree beside the road. He went over to see if there were any figs, but there were only leaves. Now, fig trees don't have leaves until they have figs. So they stay bare, and then when they get enough nourishment to grow their leaves, they also start growing their figs. So if you see a fig tree with leaves on it, it should have figs. And so Jesus sees a tree not yet ready, like all the other trees aren't yet in season. This tree is, is ahead of its time. Remember, this tree represents the children of Israel. This tree has had something that the other trees hasn't had. Almost like God's people have had 
a head start on knowing God's plan, almost as if, though, they were given clues about a coming Messiah, almost as if they had had the last three years with the Son of God walking around with them. They had a chance to be fruitful long before anybody else does. See, the rest of the nations weren't ready yet, but the children of Israel were primed to receive Jesus. And yet, when we see Jesus coming into the city, he's crying. He goes, you don't actually get it. See, that's the hard thing. He goes, you don't actually get it. You look like you get it. Oh, I'm going to have to preach this different, I can tell. He looks at a group of people who are all excited about being really religious and really all like, whoa, we can't, we can't wait. And he goes, you think you get it, but you don't get it. Because when I come to inspect for some fruit, I don't find any fruit. I see a whole lot of leaves. I see a whole lot of stuff that looks like you should know what's going on. And this is where Jesus is heartbroken for the Jews. He's like, the Jewish people had every advantage. And yet they still reject Jesus. And he goes, fine. I came first to the Jew, but now it's to the Gentiles and everybody. Because you no longer are ready to receive what you should have been receiving. The Jews reject Jesus when they had the best opportunity to go, yeah, we got the Messiah. Let's roll with the Messiah. They don't take it. And see, Jesus curses that. This isn't like a new idea for Jesus. Remember, in John chapter 15, he says, I am the true grapevine and my father is the gardener. I'm the vine. You're the branches. You remember this, this passage? I read it to you last week. My father cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. If you're attached to me, if you really understand where life comes from, then you got to bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, you get pruned off. And the branches that do bear fruit, they get pruned so that they can produce even more. So if, if you ain't producing no fruit, you're gone. And if you're only producing a little fruit, you know what happens? You get pruned so you can produce more. Do you know what you prune off of a branch that's got some fruit and you want to have more fruit? You prune its leaves. You prune the things it's growing that is not necessary. You you prune the stuff where it's sending energy and resources that it doesn't need to anymore. It doesn't need to be growing all that. It needs to be growing fruit. It says, so even if you're growing fruit, I want you to grow more. It's this expectation. He says, you remain in me and I remain in you for a branch can't produce fruit if it's severed from the vine and you can't be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can't produce anything. Almost as if, though, the people for three years had enjoyed miracles, had enjoyed, enjoyed being connected to the fruit of Jesus, but they never got it for themselves. They never said, hey, let's embrace this. They said, hey, do us a miracle, feed us. But when it comes time to surrender and to take your word for it, Jesus, and to to set aside all of our religion. When it comes time to set aside our traditions and our, our preconceived notions and all the desires that we have for ourselves and all the ways that we make ourselves look good, 
We're not going to do that. We just want all the benefits. And Jesus says, hey, that time has come to an end. He says, if you're not actually connected to me, if you're not actually a branch connected to the vine, then you're not going to have any fruit. See, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees get mad at Jesus because he exposes the fact that there's no real fruit on their branches. No, no, no. Come on, I'm preaching to somebody. They had a lot of leaves. I got a lot of leaves. See, when you look at it from a distance, the expectation is, oh, that one's got fruit because look at all the leaves. Look how much they go to church. Look at the bumper sticker on their car. Look at the things they post on Instagram. Man, they look like somebody with fruit. But when you get up there and you would inspect that life, you see that it's shallow, that they're not really connected to the vine, that there's no substance in their life, that they're just playing around going, yeah, as long as I look good and I pass an inspection from a distance. They set an expectation of fruit, but they deliver nothing. And Jesus goes, you're cursed. That's not what it looks like to be one of my followers. That's not what God has for you. Anyone who does not remain in me, verse 6 says, is thrown away like a useless branch and it withers. And some branches are gathered into a pile and burned. But if you remain in me, look at this promise, but if you remain in me, if you actually have a life with Jesus, me and my words remain in you, you can ask for anything you want. There it is again. You want the, like, they, they, think it's a, they think it's a lesson on, here's how you say a prayer and get, get, get back something out of the prayer. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The prayer works because you have faith in something bigger than yourself. You're connected to a vine. Because there ain't no power in the branch to do anything. He says, when you're connected, you, you can do that. He says, you can ask for anything you want and it'll be granted. Well, Pastor Josh, I think you're making too much out of this. I don't produce fruit, but I still think God loves me because God loves everybody. Yeah, yeah, I know God loves you. But Jesus says there's an expectation. It's not a free ride where you just sit there and go, I'll do whatever I want and I'll just bring the name of Jesus down. I'll pretend like I'm good when it suits me, but I'm not actually going to get connected to the vine. I'm not going to get real in my walk with God. You're actually doing damage to the name of Jesus. You're carrying around the, the title of Christian, but you're not doing anything to point people to the Christ who died for him. You're actually making it look like as if though there's nothing real there because you have all the leaves, but when somebody gets close, you've got no fruit, no value. That's why he says the next verse, verse eight, when you produce much fruit, that's how people know you're my true disciples. And that's what brings great joy to the father. Not all the leaves, not all the spiritual trappings, not all the times you, you pray or read your Bible. Those are great things, don't get me wrong. But if you're doing it just so you have leaves to show, that's the wrong motivation. It's not about putting on a show. It's about producing real fruit. What's that look like, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Colossians 1 verse 10 says, then the way you live will always honor and please God. This is if you're following after Jesus. You go read the whole chapter for yourself. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Your life will become a fruit-producing life. 
I don't, it's not talking about your job. You don't have to be a pastor to produce fruit. You don't have to be a missionary in Africa to produce fruit. You can be a fruit-producing Christian. You can be somebody with value, somebody with substance, somebody who pleases God with their life right at the job that you're at, right in the family that you're in, right at the school that you go to or the neighborhood you live in. You can produce fruit right there. As a matter of fact, I believe God put you there because he wants somebody to demonstrate where, you, where they can find fruit too. If you would actually get serious about your walk with God, then you could, you could go beyond just simple leaves. You could say, hey, I've got something of substance that'll change your life, not me, but the one I'm connected to. Pastor, that's real vague. Could you give me any kind of real examples? I can. Galatians 5, 22 says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Am I, am I connected to God? Am I producing any of the things you're talking about? Here's your list. This is the kind of fruit it produces in our life. Love. Should be producing some love in your life. Some joy. Woo! Some joy. Are you somebody that can find joy even in hard times like what we're going through right now? Even when the news is scary, can you, are you the person that has some fruit being produced where it's joy no matter what? Because you go, hey, my joy doesn't rest on what somebody on the TV says. My joy rests in the fact that I know there's a, bigger, there's a bigger work at hand and I know what the end result is so I can be happy in the middle of scary times. Do you have love? Do you have joy? Do you have peace? Are you able to take all of the things that doesn't make sense to other people, all the bad news that you've gotten and go, you know what, I still... I still know that there's somebody in control and I don't have to worry about taking it on me. How about patience? That one hurt. I'm just going to skip over it. <laughs> patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. It goes on. It's got another verse. Gentleness and self-control. There's a little test for you. If those things aren't in your life, then maybe you got a lot of leaves but no fruit. You know what I noticed? <clears throat> I read this story about Palm Sunday. When you leave here today, we're going to hand you a palm. Because I, I like it. I like the tradition. Take the palm with you. We had them folded into crosses. You can put them on your dashboard or on your mirror at home. Put it somewhere where you'll see it. and just kind of remind you of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you. It's a great thing. We get the tradition of palm leaves, of Palm Sunday from the palm leaves that they put in front of Jesus. And you know what? It's just leaves. I was writing this message and I thought about it. For all of the hoopla and all of the party, the same people breaking off the branches and throwing the leaves in front of them saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, are the same people a few days later saying, crucify him, crucify him. Because it's just leaves. It's just leaves. Talk is cheap. Are you ready to be real? I think that's what Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. Are you ready? You're ready to go beyond the it looks good on the outside to everybody else. And I'm just hoping nobody gets close enough to investigate that there's nothing life-giving in me. Now listen, I'm going to, I'm going to be straight up with you. This hurts because I know there's a lot of times in my life where I got plenty of leaves that people even praise me for. You're looking good. But I know deep down I'm not, I'm not fruitful like I'm supposed to be. 
There's nothing life-giving in, in, in me. There's times where I've walked away from God. And I, just, I just fooled everybody because they couldn't get close enough to look deep. If that's you, the beautiful thing about this week is that Jesus died so you don't have to stay that way. I want you to stand with me if you would, Harbor Church. I'm going to pray over you. I want to challenge you right now in this moment to remember what this upcoming week is supposed to mean. It's a time to remember a God who went before you, an innocent lamb who was sacrificed in place of us. He who knew no sin became sin. He was he had the sin of the world put on him. He had everything that you and I have done wrong, every mistake we've ever made, every sin we've ever committed, every time we missed the mark of God's best in our life. Jesus paid for that to set us free so that you don't have to stand there in your shame. If you're listening to this, you don't have to sit there in your guilt. You don't have to say, woe is me. You don't have to, you don't have to become a religious person who hides behind tons of leaves you can say, God, forgive me. Because I can't take away my sins, but what you did on that cross takes away my sins. So I'm claiming your gift for my salvation. Forgive me. And right now, right where you stand, right where, you sit, right where you're listening, if you right now will open your heart and say, Jesus, forgive me. I need you more than I need me. I need your plan more than I need mine. If you in this moment, whatever your prayer looks like, if you will have a prayer where you invite Jesus to sit at the driver's seat of your life, sit in the, in, on the throne of your life, let him be the Lord of your life. Let him be the God because you're not a good enough God for your life. If in this moment you will confess him and invite him in, you can have what the Bible describes as, as salvation, what we call being saved, having a savior. You surrender to Jesus and accept the gift that he gave you on the cross. And you can pray that right where you're standing right now. Just words between you and God. He knows every thought. I'm going to pray out loud, and here's what I would ask. As I'm praying out loud, that you have a moment of prayer where you just admit, God, this is, this is where I've fallen short. I need more of that fruit that Pastor Josh was talking about. I don't have that love or that joy or that peace. I don't have a lot of that list, and God, I need it. So if you're standing here, if you're listening, if you're under the sound of my voice and you claim to already be a, a Christian, you claim to already be a follower of Jesus, then how about in this moment you get real? Because what he went through, the pain of that cross, he went through for you. So what about if this moment you say, God, I really need what you offer. I need to be connected to the vine. I need to start showing some patience for some of my family members. I need to start showing some gentleness for some coworkers. God, I need some of that peace because I'm so stressed out and worried. You ask him for that fruit, and it's, he said, if you ask for it and you have faith in him, you're going to get it. So as I pray out loud, I hope that there's a whole group of pre people praying quietly to say, I want to be more fruit-filled. I want to have more of that in my life. I want to walk out of this room different than I walked in by, by the power of Jesus I want to be somebody that's not just a bunch of leaves. I want to be somebody that actually has something tangible, something real. As I pray, you pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you so much for who you are. God, thank you for your love and your grace. 
God, thank you for what you did with your last days. It's so different than what we would have done. God, even with your last breath, you were forgiving the very people who were crucifying you. God, your last days were filled with love and compassion and a desire for us to be real. God, I'm afraid that just like it was 2,000 years ago, there's so many people who aren't real, so many people who claim you, but it's just words, it's just leaves. God, I ask that we would be reminded right now in this moment, this whole weekend, God, as we look forward to celebrating your resurrection, God, I pray that we would do an inventory, that we would examine whether we're actually real, whether we actually have anything worth other people investigating. God, I pray that this would become a room that's filled with people that get excited about serving you, that get excited about being connected to you. God, I pray that there's people that right now in this moment, wherever they're listening, God, that they would invite you in as their Lord and Savior, that they would accept your gift of salvation, your gift of forgiveness. They'd let you be the one that would call the shots for their life. And God, I pray that each and every one of us would take an opportunity this week to share that story, share some of that fruit, have an example where we love on those around us and point somebody to you. God, would you use us in a mighty way? And God, would you continue to use us as we surrender to you? Would you continue to help us produce more and more fruit so that when our last days do come, we can look back and say, my life matters because I invested in eternity. Help, that, help us, Lord God. Help each and every one of us. It's in your name that I pray this. Amen. If you'd like to support the ministries of Harbor as we bring the hope of Jesus to our community and around the world, you can visit harborchurch.com give or text any amount to 84321. Thanks for listening. See you next week.